If you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 30, 13 through 35. Acts chapter 15, verses 13 through 35. As you're turning there, um, just by way of introduction, a um, little personal example. I had to go to the eye doctor recently. It had been a, a long number of years since I'd gone to get a new prescription to see and um, the last time I went, I'd gotten a prescription for my contacts, and um, you know they, it worked pretty good. Uh, but that prescription ran out, and not going back, I went to an older prescription. And so, for the last however many years, I've been seeing less than ideally um, through old prescriptions. And so, I got a new prescription, and it was amazing how much clearer things were when I put those contacts in for the first time. Um, it, it was things were, were sharper, things were clearer, and I didn't even realize how bad I was seeing until I got the new prescription in. And so I'm enjoying this. It, it's a good thing. I can make your faces out better um, than I did last time I was up here. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, but my prayer uh, for, this, for this message out of Acts 15 is that it might serve like those new contacts do to help us see God's Word just a little more clearly than we did before we came in here. Um, if we can walk out of here understanding this, seeing some things that we didn't see, connecting some things that we previously couldn't connect, and knowing what we need to do with it, then I'd call that a success. Um, so let's begin reading Acts chapter 15. We'll start in verse 13 and we will read all the way through verse 35. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Our Father, we come humbly before you for these few moments to consider what your word has for us. God, what an amazing passage filled with some amazing truth uh, for us. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts. God, that we would see what we need to see, that we'd be able to understand it, that we'd be able to grasp it, that we'd be able to make the right connections. God, that we'd be able to, to, to be transformed by what we hear and that we'd be able to live in light of this truth and, 
in a way that better represents our Savior. God, we're going to consider some weighty things today. And I just pray you'd give much grace, Lord, to me as I do my best to explain these things and to all of us as we hear, uh, Lord, to, to, to get what's being said, to, to see it as it is, to understand it, um, Lord, um, and be able to take it home and, and know that uh, we have better understood your word. So God, we commit our hearts and our minds uh, to you right now. Please uh, be with us in a very special way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this message is a simple one. It's, it's this, the Gentiles are accepted in Christ. We want to like put parentheses to qualify that, but the Gentiles are accepted. And this matters because, you know, we've been going through the book of Acts and the first part of Acts, it's the gospel going to the Jews. Um, but then in Acts chapter 10 and, and chapter 11, the gospel makes a transition. God starts to lead the, the, the church to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Mark preached on this a few months ago now, I think, maybe a month or two, when he was in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, uh, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert to Christ, him and his, his household. And so that kind of started the ball rolling, and we've been in a, a transition to where the, the gospel now and, and Luke's account of the gospel going forth is mostly on the Gentile world. And as Paul, the apostle, called out by God, saved by God, um, and others are preaching the gospel to the nations and no longer to Jews only. And, you know, this is a great thing to celebrate. It's a great thing to see. Not only Jews are receiving salvation, but Gentiles also. And, and we come to this church in Antioch, a, a primarily Gentile church, uh, where you have Jews and Gentiles together worshiping the Lord. But it's a bunch of Gentiles in the church alongside the Jews. And it's, it's really kind of the first of its kind that you've got this mixed community worshiping God together. And, and this is an unheard of thing. If we know our, our history of the Old Testament, Jews aren't supposed to, to meet, to, to eat with, and to fellowship with Gentiles because Jews are clean, Gentiles are, are unclean. And yet in Christ, all that would separate Jew and Gentile has been removed. And now these two previously separated peoples have come together as one people. And God's doing some extraordinary things in the church at Antioch. Paul is there. Barnabas is there. They're, they're teaching the Word. I'm just rehashing a lot of what Mark preached um, on last week. Um, but what happens is you got some guys who, who come down from Judea, from the Jerusalem area likely, and they start saying, you know what? You have to be circumcised. It's not enough that you have faith in Jesus. You have to be circumcised in order to truly be saved, in order to truly be justified and accepted among the people of God. And as you can imagine, Paul and Barnabas, as the text says, um, understates the case in 15 verse 2 that they had no small dissension and debate with these men. Paul and Barnabas were not going to stand for anything added to the gospel. They wouldn't stand for it. They pushed back. They rejected it. They debated it, and they wouldn't give ground. And so what happens is they have to, they, they got to figure this out because these folks are claiming, hey, we're, we're from Judea. We're, you know, we're preaching the true gospel, and you guys are preaching an incomplete gospel. And so this, let's go to Jerusalem, where the apostles are, where the elders are, and let's talk to them. And so they go. Paul and Barnabas go. Um, they go to Jerusalem. Um, it says in verse 4, and when they, were, they got there, they were welcomed by the church, uh, the apostles and the elders, and they were declaring all that God had been doing among them. But it was believers, professing believers, merely professing believers, genuine believers, not sure. Um, the, the Pharisees, they rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles in order for them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So they're saying, you need to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law if you're going to truly be a Christian. You're not all the way there without circumcision and keeping the law. And so everybody is gathered together there, and there had been a big debate. Verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in early days, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so Peter goes on to relate that and how God had cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles by faith, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law, but through faith. 
And then in verse 10, it's, it's, it's amazing what he says. Why are you putting God to the test? So adding circumcision to the gospel isn't just a danger to the Gentiles who are coming to faith. He's saying you're actually testing God and you don't want to put God to the test. You don't want to do that. That's not a good thing. And he's saying to these, brother, to these, to these men, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's basically saying, look, we've never been able to bear the burden of trying to keep the law of God. We can't do it. It's a burden that is unremovable by our own strength, unremovable by our own effort. Why are you placing this on the neck of the disciples? And then verse 11, we believe that we, the Jews, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. And he's saying we're saved the same way. We're made right with God the same way. We become a part of the people of God the same way. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And again, they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related all that God was doing among the Gentiles. And so that's the setup for our passage this week. And the whole point of what's going on is that the Gentiles are accepted in Christ. It's not just that, well, they're Gentile, now we welcome them in. No, they have to be in Christ. But if a Gentile who is a non-Jew places his faith in Jesus, he is now welcome into the people of God as a full member, a full member of the community of God's people. And so when I, when I say and I title this message, the Gentiles are accepted in Christ, I've got kind of two major reasons based on this passage why they are accepted in Christ, and then two points of application from that. I'll mention these at the front, and then we'll hit them as we go. The first two main points is this. They are affirmed by the apostles, and the second, they are fulfilling prophecy. Why are the Gentiles accepted? Because they are affirmed by the apostles and they are fulfilling prophecy. And then kind of flowing out of that, the last two points are more application. Because of those things, they are to be welcomed at the Jewish table. We'll explain that even more, though it's hopefully obvious. They are to be welcomed at the Jewish table. And lastly, they are to be accepted permanently. They are to be accepted permanently. And so when we think about the reasons that this text gives us as to why the Gentiles are accepted in Christ, the first we see is that they are affirmed by the apostles. In Acts chapter 15 alone, three different apostles affirm the Gentiles as having been accepted by God on the basis of their faith in Jesus and that alone. Uh, we see Paul especially um, in verse 2, and you consider, consider Barnabas with him, verse 2 and 12, Again, it's Paul and Barnabas who had no small dissension with those who were saying you have to add circumcision and keeping of the Mosaic law. Paul's saying, no, that's not it. That's not what's going to make the Gentiles acceptable to God. It's their faith in Jesus that makes them acceptable to God and a part of the community of God's people. And again, in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas are relating everything that God was doing as they preached the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. They're, they're talking about it, sharing this with the whole council. So we see Paul, especially as an apostle, affirming the Gentiles as accepted by God through faith. We also see Peter affirming their acceptance by God. Um, all of Acts chapter 10 and, verse, and chapter 11 is Peter's account of going, like we said, going to Cornelius, preaching the gospel, Gentiles coming to faith, Peter eating with them, going into a Gentile's home, um, having table fellowship with them, which again was unheard of for a Jew. But in Christ, whatever would have kept Peter from them has been removed. Jesus has met every requirement uh, for their holiness before God and their acceptance among one another. Obviously, here in chapter 15, verses 6 through 11, Peter makes his case as to why we should not add circumcision or the law, but accept the Gentiles. Why? Because they're saved the same way we are. And if they're saved, justified, brought into the family of God the same way the Jews are, then there can be no other requirements to add. There can't be. We also see James, obviously, not the apostle James who was killed, but James, the brother of Jesus, who's a leader um, in Jerusalem through verses 13 and 21, which is where we're about to go. He, he's making a case as well that the Gentiles 
are accepted by God through their faith in Jesus. And so that's why we say the first major reason why they're accepted is because they're affirmed by the apostles. The second major reason here, we won't spend a lot more time on this one, is that they are fulfilling prophecy. The Gentiles and their coming in faith to Jesus are fulfilling prophecy. All right, I want to read again verses 13 through 17 because we're going to camp out here. Or 13 through 18. We're going to camp out here for a little while. It says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant (coughs) of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. (coughs) So they are fulfilling prophecy. Well, we have to ask, what prophecy are they fulfilling? Well, James is going to quote Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But that's not the only prophet James is referring to. He says, with what's happening, the prophets, plural, agree. So what Peter or what James is about to quote from Amos 9 is representative of what the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament have been teaching and predicting and promising. So if you want to, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. Now, if you have a hard time finding that, go, if you can find Daniel, everybody can find the book of Daniel. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. You then got, go to the right to Hosea, one more to Joel, and then you got Amos. Okay, I worked on that to make sure I could get you there. Um, The minor prophets are tough. Um, Some of y'all grew up in church and you memorized the, the, the songs or the chants to get there. My wife grew up in a Christian home. She learned those things. And if she wants to find a place in scripture, she just rehearses the song. I don't have the song. So I, I got to work really hard to find that. So I was like, I'm going to make sure I can give you some pointers to find Amos. He's there, I promise. But Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Okay, this is the, verse, the two verses that James is quoting in affirmation of what Peter said. <clears throat> So let's read those again here in the Old Testament. It says, In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Now, you may have noticed there's some differences here from what James quoted, and we'll talk about that a little bit now and a little bit later. Um, When you think of what James said, he added a phrase to this. He's not adding to the word of God. I think it's his, as an apostle, he's, he's setting up what he's about to quote. He said, after this, I will return. Okay, we don't see that in the Hebrew. It's also not in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And I think what James is doing there, when he says, after this, I will return, there's two things. Number one, when James refers to Amos and he says that, he's first talking about what took place leading up to this point in Amos, okay? From about Amos chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 9, verse 10, it's talking about God's judgment, God's warning, and God's destruction of Israel for her sin, okay? That's what's leading up to this passage that James quotes, God's judgment on his people for their sin, okay? And so James, in saying after this, he's encompassing all of that. Okay, I think that's his, we, we do that all the time when we talk about things. If we want to do a quick summary, we'll make a quick summary statement to get to what we want to say. And I think that's what James is doing here. Uh, he's referring to chapter 2, verse 4, up through chapter 9, verse 10. And when he says, I will return. Okay, and this is getting into some of the controversy that's with this text. God is clearly saying that he will return in some way after these things, after this promised judgment and destruction, and that when he does, he will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And so in light of the fact that there's going to be judgment on Israel, the fact that God is saying, there's, I'm going to do a change, I'm going to raise up this tent of David, that means God's going to come back to his people in a new way that's not in a way of judgment, but in a way of blessing. And so I think that's why James says, after this, I will return. Okay, so, but let's think about this. 
Some say, and this, this will be familiar to some of you maybe, some say that this, what James is saying here, what Amos is saying, is a clear reference to the second coming of Christ, Christ's return in power and glory, that only then will the tent of David be rebuilt. But it need not mean that. Okay, That's the way some will take it, and we're going to dive into that a little more in a moment. But it doesn't necessarily have to refer to the second coming of Christ, to his return in that way. I think the text pushes us in another direction. And I think what it's doing is primarily referring to the first coming of Christ. And let me tell you why. The first coming of Christ was actually a return of God to his people. Okay, think, think about this. They'd had 400 years of silence after the last prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. 400 years of silence. No word from God. No prophet. Where is God? Where is the word of God? And so, in the coming of Christ, it is the return of God in two ways, both in terms of prophetic activity and in terms of his personal presence. God actually came personally, physically in the person of Jesus Christ to his people. So this first coming of Christ is the return of God to his people who had not heard from him for 400 years. We know this. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who was at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so the coming of Christ was a return of God to His people in great glory. Yes, prophetic activity resumed with John the Baptist, and then God himself came. And he couldn't have come in a more personal or more glorious way than in the person of Jesus. And so after the judgment and the destruction that Amos described in chapter 2, verse 4, up through chapter 9, verse 10, God truly, literally, physically came and returned to his people in Jesus to do what? To rebuild the tent of David. Now, rebuilding the tent of David is simply a reference to restoring the rule and the power of the Davidic throne to the son of David who was promised to rule on it. That's what he's talking about. David's throne did not have a king sitting on it. It did not have authority at the moment. It, it, it was without power. And God's saying, I'm going to come. And in that day, after these things, I'm going to raise the booth or the tent of David back up. I'm going to rebuild it. I'm going to restore it. Meaning that there's going to be a king sitting there and this king is going to reign. This, his authority will be restored. But as we know from other places in the Old Testament, it's not just over Israel, but over the whole world. And I say this because many believers who I know love God and love his word believe Amos is referring to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of what is called the millennial kingdom. And they see this Amos text as necessarily referring to the second coming and the establishment of Christ's kingdom then. And so when they come to Acts 15, our text, they have to read it in light of this emphasis. This perspective, if you're not familiar with it, is called the dispensational perspective. And some of this you might know. Um, in light of how it interprets the Bible, it holds to what? A literal future 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth from Jerusalem in a restored ethnic and national Israel. This way of interpreting the Bible has a very massive separation between Israel and the church. And while the church is definitely God's plan for this present age... There's yet a future age that is intended primarily for ethnic national Israel in which it is said God will finally fulfill all his Old Testament promises to Israel. And again, in this dispensational perspective, this position, God has two peoples, Israel and the church. And God has two distinct plans, one for Israel, one for the church, and the two do not join. God's promises to Israel are to Israel alone and not to the church, which is why the church has to be taken out before what's called the Great Tribulation. And after the seven years of that tribulation, Jesus comes back to set up his millennial kingdom. He sits on a literal throne in Jerusalem where he reigns over the nations for a thousand years. Now, in that, Christians will participate in some way in the government, um, but it is mostly and primarily a Jewish kingdom because it's about God's promises to Israel. And so we go back to Acts chapter 15. If you want to turn back there. Acts chapter 15, what James is quoting here. 
The dispensational position says that Amos and later James, when he quotes him, is not speaking of the church age. What James is quoting has nothing to do directly with the church. It has everything to do with the millennial kingdom. So it's a promise to ethnic national Israel that only indirectly relates to the Gentiles and to the church, okay? This interpretation says that in that future time, Gentiles will seek God in that millennial kingdom because that's when the booth of David, the tent of David, the rule of David will be restored. And because it will be restored, Jesus is going to be reigning and Gentiles will literally go all from over the earth to a restored Jerusalem where Jesus will be in person and that's how they will be seeking him. And so on that basis, Acts 15, James is looking to the future. And so what James does in this perspective is, well, because in the millennium, when Gentiles come to Jesus, they're not going to... James, Amos doesn't say anything about circumcision. They're not going to be required to be circumcised then, so they shouldn't be required to be circumcised now. Now, I'm going to say that's not an impossible interpretation, but I don't think it's the best interpretation. I'm convinced that it misses some very important insights and connections, which I hope to show you in a few moments. But before I do that, I want to make sure I say something. In my disagreement, I want it to be said as loudly and as clearly as I can say it, that I have more respect for people, for brothers and sisters of a dispensational position and persuasion than I could ever put into words. Some of the strongest defenders of the inerrancy and sufficiency and authority of the Bible have been and are dispensational. Some of the strongest defenders of the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way have been and are of the dispensational persuasion. Some of the biggest promoters of the glory of God as ultimate in the universe have been and are dispensational. The, the champions of the sovereignty of God. Um, taking the Bible seriously, not just in the big picture, but in the words and the phrases and sentences and verses. Some of the, the people who do that the most are dispensational. Some of the biggest opponents of the current social justice movement and the whole wokeness disease that is spreading in the church are dispensational. And to our joy as Baptists, the overwhelming vast majority of dispensationalists are Baptists. Um, so there you go. And so those of a dispensational persuasion and those of a more covenantal persuasion, which is where at, you know, the emphasis that we have here at our church, we can worship our Savior side by side together in the same church, in the same pew. We can sit down, open our Bibles, and discuss the issues that I'm about to deal with and we can know that the person sitting across from us is a faithful brother or sister who loves us and is only seeking to help us know the Bible better and walk with God more closely. And so if you happen to be of that persuasion um, and you disagree with the critique that I'm about to give, know that I'm more than willing to sit down with you at a later point and we can have a charitable and yet vigorous discussion on these issues. Um, I welcome that. I honestly and earnestly do. The issues that we're considering in the right context, will help us know God's Word better than we ever would have otherwise. So in light of that deep respect, in light of that appreciation for many of a dispensational persuasion, I'm going to offer respectively, appreciatively, but hopefully convincingly, um, my disagreement with how they're taking Amos here. And this, this issue of what, what, it, what does this quote mean in relation to Israel and the church? This is not a small issue. This is a very important issue. It shapes how we understand the Bible. It shapes how we, how we nuance the details of the future. C.I. Schofield, who was the author of the very popular Schofield Reference Bible, the one, that Bible which made the dispensational perspective widely known and popular among the masses of people, he even said that Amos 9 is the most important passage to the dispensationalist position. Now, other dispensationalists might say, well, it's an important passage. There's others as well. We're not hanging it all on one. But all would agree that this is a significant passage. How we take this is indicative of how we take a lot of other things and where we see the Bible going and how we see the Bible fitting together. So it is a very important issue, but it is not the most important issue, okay? Again, 
This is an issue of disagreement amongst brothers. It's an in-house family debate. And family debates can sometimes be the most intense and the most heated. Family members can, can push us in ways few other people can. But in this case, it's a good thing. And so my prayer in all of this is that regardless of our conclusion, that we will be challenged to go back to the Word. Because if there's any thing that's unclear. It's not the Bible's fault. It's our fault. Okay. The Bible is clear. We're sinful. We're clouded. And we need to do our best to understand what the Bible teaches. And so here's the case. I've got time, literally time for only um, a couple of disagreements uh, and reasons for those disagreements. So back to Amos 9, if you have that place marked in your Bible, hopefully you can find it now. You've had some help. Remember, Major prophets, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Um, So, first, the dispensationalist view assumes that Amos can only be referring to the millennial kingdom as they understand that kingdom is yet to come. But I want to say there's nothing in Amos that demands that. There's nothing in Amos that demands that interpretation. Simply put, what is Amos saying? He's making a promise that God will raise up, rebuild, and repair the booth of David that has fallen, the kingship of David. And here's the kicker. If you look at the internal logic of just 11 and 12, the way we will know that David's booth has been restored is what? The nations will then belong to God. Follow what he says. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Verse 12, the result that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So it is when those who are not God's people are now God's people belonging to God. That's the evidence that you'll know David's throne, David's kingship has been restored. Okay? That's how you're going to know. And I have to mention, there is a slight difference between the Hebrew and the Greek here. And I hope you don't tune this out. Um, Sometimes getting technical, our eyes can glaze over, we can lose our spot and wander off, chase butterflies. Let's try not to do that um, when I mention a couple of these things right here. You know that the, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but at some point uh, before the coming of Christ, there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and that was called the Septuagint. So there were two Bible translations, okay? You had the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, the Greek uh, was obviously based on the Hebrew, but sometimes you compare them. You might say, why does the Greek go this way? The Hebrew seems to be a little different. Um, but what's going on here, if you notice in the bottom of your Bible, you see the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Instead of saying that they may possess the, Reda, the, the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, the Septuagint takes it to say that the remnant of mankind and all the nations who are called by my name may seek the Lord. Now, there's a lot that goes into why the Septuagint may do it that way, um, but I don't think the Septuagint's contradicting the Hebrew Um, I think it's expressing, among other things, how it is that the nations come to belong to God. Because clearly saying they're going to belong to God when the tent of David is restored. Okay, People who weren't God's people will become God's people when whoever this Davidic king is comes. Okay, That's clear. That's clear. And I think that's what the Septuagint is, is getting at. So the focus then of Amos is not specifically on a promise to the restored nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom. I just think that's reading an interpretation into the text that's not there. It's instead a promise, and here's the promise. The chief public evidence that David's kingship has been restored is that the Gentiles are seeking God. Okay? Hopefully that is clear. And that leads to my second major disagreement. The dispensational position has already decided for James what he has to mean. And it's not letting James speak for himself. So let's go back to Acts chapter 15. So in the context of Acts 15, I think it's clear that James's quotation applies not indirectly from the future to the present, but directly to the present situation. The whole context of Acts and of Acts 15 is, is not even anticipating something, a future work of God in the Jewish people exclusive to the Gentiles. The whole issue, as Mark has shown so many times as we've been working through this, it's God working in the church, in the Gentiles to bring them into the, the 
into the kingdom of the one true God. Gentiles are doing what in the book of Acts? They are seeking the Lord. Gentiles are seeking the Lord just as Amos and the other prophets said they would. And they're seeking him. Why? Because in Christ, the tent of David has been rebuilt and restored. And so the point James is making is this. The rebuilding of David's tent comes before the Gentile seeking God. So reverse the logic. We've said it. Let's say it again to drive this point home. We will know that David's tent has been rebuilt when we see what? Gentiles seeking God. And so here's the thing. The Gentiles won't seek after God unless and until David's tent is restored. Okay? That's the thing. If the Gentiles are seeking God, it has to mean that David's kingship has been restored. And it has been in Christ. Who is Christ? He's the son of David. He is the long-promised Messiah. The Gentiles are seeking God because they're seeking Christ. When the restored Davidic king comes, there's also something else that comes into play. It's called the new covenant. We've mentioned this many times before. And that's what James is working with here. Not just the restoration of David's throne in Christ, but the fact is we know in Christ there is a new covenant. The old covenant with Moses is now done away with. A new covenant in Jesus has been brought about. And we know in the new covenant, it does not say do this and live. It says repent and believe in Jesus and you will live. Old covenant, you have to be faithful. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep this law if you don't judgment. New covenant, everything required has been done in Jesus. So you don't do anything. You receive it. You believe. You repent from your sin. And you trust him who did it all for you. So in this new covenant, we don't look to our own obedience to God's law. We look to Christ's obedience for us. We are set apart unto God as his people not through circumcision, but through faith in Christ. To add physical circumcision as a requirement for being saved and for belonging to God's people is to diminish Christ and His work. It is to diminish the cross. It is to say it's not sufficient. It's not enough. That's the significance of this. Now that a new covenant has been brought that brings superior forgiveness, a superior priest, superior everything, to add to that is to diminish it. And neither Paul, nor Barnabas, nor Peter, nor James, nor the whole church at Jerusalem will allow for this to happen. And so when James refers to Peter's words and quotes from Amos to show that what the prophet said would happen is what's currently happening, he's showing the Gentiles who are called by God's name are seeking him. David's tent has been rebuilt in Jesus. That's why the whole book of Acts is showing Gentiles coming. If, if it had not been rebuilt, we wouldn't be seeing a book, two-thirds of which are devoted to Gentiles coming to Christ. Acts 13, 48 from several weeks ago. Remember this. When the Gentiles heard it, they began what? Rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those Gentiles who were appointed to eternal life were, to use the words of James, called by God's name to seek him. It's the same thing, different way of saying the same thing. And so throughout the book of Acts and the point, again, James is not referring to a future work in the Jews alone that has application back to the present. He's talking about something that is being fulfilled in the present that we're seeing in the present in this in gathering of the Gentiles into the church through their faith in Jesus, who is the promised Davidic king. So let's think about this. The new covenant age only comes about when the Messiah comes. It only comes about when the Davidic king comes. That king is Jesus. And so we can say that the new covenant age is the kingdom age. It's the messianic age. It's the end time restoration of Israel and the end gathering of the Gentiles. It's like a bunch of different streams that are to converge together into the river that we would call Christ, kingdom, Messiah, in gathering, expansion of Israel, all of that comes together in 
Jesus. And we can't make sense of Christ and his work apart from all these divergent streams. But at the same time, the New Testament shows us that all these streams are going somewhere. They were intended all along to converge somewhere and that this somewhere is actually a someone and this someone where they converge is Jesus. This new covenant community that we call the church is one and the same as end times Israel, a renewed Israel that has been significantly expanded to include the Gentiles as full fellow citizens and recipients of God's promises, God's favor, God's blessing, and God's presence. It is centered in and on Christ through the new covenant, and that is where you find the true Israel and the one people of God. The international people of God is promised in the Old Testament and as will be perfected in the new creation. And so I I hope, I hope that it is clear from this that what James is doing is seeing the Old Testament prophets were talking about their current situation. It makes sense in the context of the book of Acts. It makes sense in the context of of Acts chapter 15, that what the prophets are talking about is relevant to the current situation directly, not just indirectly. So, like I said, I'm going to spend the most most time on that point, um, and we'll kind of rush through, through the rest of this. So, the Gentiles are accepted in Christ. Why? They're affirmed by the apostles, and as we've seen, they are fulfilling prophecy. So, the two things that flow out of that real quickly... Number one, they are to be welcomed at the Jewish table. That's verses 19 through up through verse 32. Um, James says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Uh, from ancient times or generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay. So when we think about this point, that the Gentiles are to be welcomed at the Jewish table, that's the whole point of this. These Pharisees had come in and said, you can't accept these Gentiles unless and until they've been circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And James's, Peter did, Paul and Barnabas did, and now James did, has just said, look, you, you're totally missing the point. There's a new covenant. The, the king has come. They're accepted on the basis of their faith in this king. And so they are to be welcomed at the table. And this letter that they send, I believe, is intended to to soothe Jewish sensibilities in terms of dealing with Gentiles. And we'll, we'll get to that. So when we think about them being welcomed at the Jewish table and this letter that's being sent, let's think about this. The whole Jerusalem church endorses that Gentiles should be allowed to fellowship with Jews. The whole church in Jerusalem endorses this. The letter is from the whole Jerusalem church. They're seeking to encourage all of their Gentile brothers. I mean, look at verse 23. They say what? Um, The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are in the churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So they're calling these Gentile brothers. Okay, They're, They're saying, you're brothers along with us. And the goal is encouragement. We see in verse um, 31 that when this letter comes, the churches, these Gentile churches rejoice because of its encouragement. So the letter is seeking to encourage uh, their Gentile brothers. It clearly rejects the position of the Pharisees. In no way do they accept even a little bit, even a little bit, this doctrine that you have to add circumcision or something to the to the requirements to uh, be right with God. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 24, what do they say? We've heard that some persons have gone out from us, troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Like we didn't endorse it. We didn't send them. We reject what they say. Don't believe it. Don't listen to it. Don't have anything to do with it. And may we say just by extension, anyone who comes adding to the gospel, we should have no place for them doesn't matter how good they look, how persuasive they sound, how smooth their voice is. If they are adding to the gospel, they are to be rejected outright. Not just then, in every generation of the church until Jesus comes back. Anyone who adds to the gospel is outside the gospel. This letter endorses Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they were the ones who had this initial no small dissension. 
They said, we're not going to agree with this. We're not going to allow it. What do they call them in verses 25 and 26? Our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So, I mean, you can't give a higher recommendation to these two men than what this church is giving. So what Barnabas and Paul is what they're saying, what Barnabas and Paul have been preaching to you, keep listening. They got it right. Don't turn away from what they have been saying. It's affirmed. This letter is affirmed by the leading men from Jerusalem. Think about the men who are sent with Barnabas and Paul to the churches, Judas and Silas. Um, what does it say? Verse, um, verse 22, it says they sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So it's not like they found you know, some no-names, unknowns in the church of Jerusalem who nobody knew about. So they could kind of, you know, in a, in a side way say, oh yeah, you know, we endorsed it, but they didn't really want to. No, they sent people that everybody knew, everybody respected, everybody recognized. So that if Judas and Silas go, it's very clear what the church in Jerusalem is trying to say. No doubt. So they've already endorsed Barnabas and Paul. They send these leading men. Uh, verses 28 and 29, the whole point of the letter is to guard the Gentiles from Jewish suspicion. Because again, Jews steeped in the Mosaic law, you know, they have their food laws, their ceremonial laws and all of that. And even though they're in Christ, because they still live in that world of the Mosaic law, so many of them still kept a lot of the customs. It would be very difficult for them to have a Gentile come in and sit at their table. Because in their mind, Gentiles are sexually immoral. You know, they sacrifice the idols and they do all these things. And what this letter is doing, yes, it's giving the Gentiles instructions, but it's another purpose is so that when Jews encounter these Gentiles, the Gentiles can say, look, you know, we might not be under the Mosaic code, but that doesn't mean we're against law. It doesn't mean we're against God. It doesn't mean that we don't follow what God says. Okay, it's, it's a letter intended to guard the Gentiles from Jewish suspicion. And there, there's a debate on terms of exactly why Paul includes some of those things. But I think at root, it's simply they're preserving, like we said, this table fellowship that Gentiles are to be welcomed at the Jewish table. And in verse 23 and 29, we see their letter welcomes the Gentiles fully into the family of God. Now, this is kind of an implicit thing. Um, when we think about the Gentiles being welcomed at the Jewish table, Gentile obedience confirms it. And it doesn't actually say anything about their obedience here, but I think it's implied in the sense that they receive this letter with joy, they're encouraged by it, and so they're eager to put into practice what the church in Jerusalem had told them to do. They were submissive to the apostolic teaching, and they wanted to be found walking faithfully with God. Now, I want to make a point here before we get to the close. Um, something that applies to, to those who teach and to a congregation. The, the church in Antioch especially, but also um, Antioch and Cilicia and, and the other, church, other city that was mentioned, they were so eager for the Word of God. They were so eager to be faithful to God. This is a good thing. They had a hunger for the word. They eagerly accepted teaching. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were there. They had others. It was a church marked by sound teaching, and the people received it eagerly. They, they, they loved the word of God. They, they were submissive to it. They wanted more of it. And I, I can just say, by God's grace, that is what we see here at our church at North Avenue, a church eager for the word. Now, I know you put up with a lot for me today in terms of dealing with Amos and how it's interpreted in Acts. Like that, if your head's hurting, I apologize somewhat, um, but you put up with a lot in this church in terms of, of the, the content and the depth to which we, we, we go in things. And like, but you're eager for it. I mean, like, you know, you never know how each week's going to go, but it was like we were in week five of our Thursday night Bible study, and we had more people in the fifth week of summer than the first. Usually it starts out, you get the most, and it kind of tapers down. We increased last week. That's just not normal. It's a great thing. I mean, you're, you're, you're not asleep yet. You're still tracking with me, for which I appreciate. You, like, this church loves the Word of God. You're eager for the teaching, and that's just amazing to me. And I think it definitely shows that it is an evidence of God's grace. But the flip side of that, and this is, this is really a charge to myself and, any, and the elders and any who teach in this church, what a responsibility with the people who are eager. Knowing you're eager, one, thrills us and fires us up, but two, 
what a weight of responsibility that we don't abuse the privilege of a people eager to hear the Word of God. I think this is why the same James in his book, in his letter, says, teachers, not many of you should want to be teachers. Why? You're going to receive a stricter judgment. The privilege of teaching an eager people is a great privilege. It's one I don't ever want to abuse. It's one I know none of us ever do. And that's why as much as we can in our teaching, we want to be as biblical as we can be. We're not going for for flashiness. We're not going for a big emotional thing. We're going for faithfulness to the Word. We're going for faithfulness to the Word. And by God's grace, may not just now, but every generation of leadership in this church only give you the Bible. And may, by God's grace, may every generation in this church be as eager as you are to receive God's Word. The last point that we'll close with is simply this. The Gentiles, obviously, are to be permanently accepted. It's not a temporary thing. It's a permanent thing. Because Christ's new covenant, His kingship, is permanent. Inclusion into the family of God through Jesus is permanent. It is permanent. And so, Jews and Gentiles alike... In Christ, forever, equal in God's sight, equal in God's family. No more distinctions. Yeah, you might still be ethnically Jew or ethnically Gentile, but in terms of status, there is an equality. Men and women, likewise, equal in God's sight. Yes, equal as image bearers of God, but in terms of our inheritance in Christ, equal. That's what Christ has given us. That's what Christ has done. So let's pray. God, I pray right now, Lord, if there be any in here who is outside of this wonderful community we call the church, Lord, I pray that you will awaken them to the glory of the gospel, to the glory of salvation that we've talked about. God, open their eyes to see that this Jesus, who is the King, who has won a perfect salvation, Lord, that He is worthy of their trust. Lord, we cannot open the eyes of anyone, but You can, and I pray that You would even in this moment. Those here, those who are listening. God, for those of us who know You, this church, North Avenue, Lord, help us hold dear, hold and cling to the Gospel. Cling to this this unity that we have in Christ. Lord, help us value His work for us more and more. Lord, help us never tolerate any addition to the gospel, any addition to his perfect work. God, help us love one another. Help us be eager to learn your word. And Lord, help all those who teach to only faithfully teach it. God, thank you that we have a unity that is bigger than how we interpret how James uses Amos. God, yes, there may be disagreement and debate on that, but God, we praise You and thank You that what we have in Christ is far bigger. That we can disagree with that until we get to heaven and then we'll together worship our Lord. God, guide us as a church to only walk with You in light of what Your Word teaches. Make us a rigorously biblical people more and more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.